Welcome to America's Got Talent. Thank you. And what is your name? My name is Brett Loudermilk, and uh, I'm a sword swallower. Oh. Uh, I need a woman from the audience to help me out. Let's see who we've got. Sophia, can I please use you? over here. I'm not gonna swallow anything. No, 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 you... <laughs> you... No, no, no. no. I'm gonna place the sword into my throat and let go. I'm gonna hold it there with the muscles of my esophagus. I'll snap my fingers, open everything up. It's gonna drop down the rest of the way by itself. So I'll turn towards you and wink. When I wink, you grab the sword and you pull it out. No, I'm not yes. gonna just pull it! <laughs> what if I kill you? <laughs> You were the wrong choice. Okay. Um, are you, <laughs> you ready? No. Just nice and slow. Okay. Okay, here we go. If you caught season 15 of America's Got Talent, you know from watching sword swallower Brett Loudermilk make it to the semifinals that America's also got guts and spontaneity. You have to watch. <laughs> I'm Mark Hartsman, and in this episode of Weird Historian, you'll meet Brett, hear all about his AGT experiences, and find out what makes someone want to swallow a sword in the first place. Not to mention a few live frogs. Hey, Brett. How are you? How's it going? Good. Thanks for joining me on Weird Historian. Naturally, we've got to talk about your amazing run on America's Got Talent. But before we dive into that, let's talk about the talent that got you there. Uh, you learned to swallow swords as a teenager. Yeah. Uh, yes, I was a, a, young, a young teenager. Um, I, was, uh, I was 15 when I learned. 15. So what made you want to do that at 15? And then how did you go about learning it? So it, it, it starts when I was about eight, uh, and I learned how to hammer a nail up my nose. So I learned how to do blockhead uh, at eight years old from a guy named uh, Dexter Tripp, who was a, um, primarily a juggler, tightrope walker, but he, he works the Renaissance Fair circuit. And uh, that's where I met him, uh, where I was, uh, I was a street character. Uh, at the Renaissance Fair in North Carolina. Oh, so you were working there at eight? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, okay. A volunteer opportunity acting gig kind of kind of thing. Uh, my mom lied and said I was twelve. Um, and, and so you just walked up. So you watched Dexter's show, obviously, and were impressed. And you said, "Hey, can you teach me to do that?" And he was like, "Sure, eight-year-old boy. I'll I'll teach you how to put a nail in your nose." Yeah, basically. The entire foundation of, of my career so far has been laid by uh, irresponsible adults. And it's worked out. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, it's, it's really good. <laughs> um, so I started with Blockhead when I was really young. And, uh, you know, every, every year at the Renaissance Fair, I would, I would pick up a few more skills. I built a bed of nails 
when I was actually 12, and Dexter drove his motorcycle over top of me. Well, at 12? Yeah, yeah. Wow. I, uh, I learned how to eat fire, uh, walk on broken glass, do a ladder of swords, you know, the, the whole thing. Everything basically except for sword swallowing. And so at this point, were you performing these stunts at the Renaissance Fair as well, or was this like stuff you were doing for friends at home? I had a show at the Renaissance Fair when I was 14. So I had an, like a legitimate stage show there, and it was the um, possibly the worst time slot ever. It was it was during the uh, during the the penultimate joust of the day, and I would I would try to gather crowds by by telling people you know the joust is rigged. I know who wins. Come over here. Let's make bets. And it would uh, it would it would kind of work. You know, I'd I'd get you know eight to twelve people watching. That's sort of where it started, and then. Later on, I moved to New York City to street perform, but then I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. Before that happened, uh, I was 15, and I had a really good basis for all the sideshow skills, except for sword swallowing. And the sword swallower that was working at the Renaissance Fair that I was performing at would not teach me, just absolutely refused. Was this a, a general thing for the sword swallower, or was it because you were 15? Um, I, you know, I don't know. Um, I think it was, uh, due to this specific sword swallower's personality. Read into that what you will. So, uh, I saw Todd Robbins, uh, eat a light bulb and, and swallow swords on, I believe it was a remake of That's Incredible. And I thought, you know what? That's the guy that's going to teach me how to do this. So I looked up his number online and I found it on his website and I cold called him. And I said, hey, you and I should know each other. Um, will you teach me how to swallow swords? And, you know, I had in that conversation, I, I dropped a lot of names because I had made a habit of, of cold calling, you know, people like Bobby Reynolds and Ward Hall, you know, these old showmen. And, you know, being somebody that was like, hey, like, I'm this young kid. I'm really interested in your career. Will you tell me your stories? And they would, uh, they'd be thrilled to brag about their accomplishments and the things that they've done. They had great stories. Oh, they're amazing stories. Yeah, for uh, sure. And, you know, not a lot of people at that time were hounding them for those things. So that was uh, to my advantage. Um, so, I, you know, I told Todd about that and he seemed pretty impressed by it and decided that he would teach me. And I learned over the phone. That seems like a tough way to learn how to swallow a sword. It's probably the worst way, but, you know, Todd's a fantastic teacher, so. And this is an old phone. This is not like video chat phone. This is. No, this is. This is, this is yes. audio. <laughs> Skype did not exist. Right. So how did he teach you over the phone? What was like, what was that process like? And, and how long did it take? Did you get injured along the way? Like, are there some, some bumps on that road or. No, I've been I've been really lucky with with the sword swallowing. I you know I've bruised myself internally many 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 times, but never you know never some of the injuries uh, you you could read about that are you know require open chest surgery or anything like that. Like nothing um, nothing detrimental. But the the learning process was really challenging. I mean it's it's the most difficult and dangerous thing I've ever learned how to do. But it was a lot of uh, Todd going, OK, so this is, you know, 
how you need to position yourself and how you need to think about it and like, you know, kind of imagine this while you're, you know, elongating your spine and you're looking up and, you know, you have to remember to breathe and just all these different techniques and, and him kind of translating them verbally instead of physically uh, as best he could. And I would go away and try the stuff that he told me to do. And then the next day I would call him back and go, okay, so these were the problems that I encountered. And it went back and forth for a couple weeks like that. And I eventually got a, got a coat hanger down my throat. And then, uh, and then he mailed me a sword. So it was your starter sword. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the first sword I got was from from Todd, and it arrived in the mail. And by the way, I was doing this not telling my parents. <laughs> so I was doing this in secret in my room. And eventually, once I got the sword, I sh- once I was able to get it down, I went downstairs and I showed my mom, and she was convinced that I had gotten it at the magic shop and that it was a fake sword. <laughs> and I sort of let her believe that for a while until it was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to let her in on the fact that this is legit and, you know, go through her freaking out and all of that. And how long was this starter sword? Uh, pretty short. I'm, I'm not the tallest person. Um, I think the first sword I got was like 17, 15 inches long, something like that. I mean, that that sounds complicated for sure. It's definitely a, 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 a larger dagger, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, that's that's still uh, it's still an amazing feat, right? Like you're talking about your height as if like uh, 15 inches, a 15 inch blade is isn't impressive enough. But any blade <laughs> that's going down your throat, I think is pretty, uh, pretty amazing. Yeah. The swords I swallow now are uh, around the 25, 27 inch range so that's going to pretty much the bottom of your stomach right yeah it hits the bottom that was so nice to todd he's such a great guy and obviously a terrific teacher i mean he's he's amazing i you know i i dropped out of high school when i was 17 and i moved to new york city and todd was i mean he was like a dad to me um he would uh I, i went there to street perform and and basically learn as much as i could from todd and, uh, he, you know, he'd take me out to lunch every day. Todd bought me my first suit. He, he's a really, really incredible person. Yeah, that's great. He's a, an amazing performer and just incredibly knowledgeable. Yeah. And, and always happy to share. So, yeah, he's, he's terrific. Yeah, I, uh, I, owe, I owe almost everything to Todd. He really, really shaped me as a performer and, and, and helped me figure out my own way. So, so once you got here and you're doing street performing and Todd's helping you out, how do you kind of keep rolling from there? Like what, what happened next? How long did street performing in, in New York last? And did you start a show here? Did you, uh, I know you moved out to California at some point. Yeah. 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 So I, uh, I moved, um, I, I was in New York for about two years and, uh, and, and I, you know, developed a, a performing persona there. And, and figured out what it meant to, you know, street perform and have to rely on strangers to, uh, to like what you're doing enough to give you money. One of the ways I would build crowds is I was performing primarily in Union Square, right across the street from where there's a Whole Foods now. And uh, back then there was a Virgin Records store as well. I remember. Yeah. 
So I would uh, I would street perform and I'd try to gather a crowd by fire breathing. And, you know, that would work. But then I would I would try to find somebody that was that was walking by that looked like they had somewhere to go. And I would try to stop them and, and make that my mission to get them to be part of the crowd. And it, it would never work. They would keep walking. So I would then throw a temper tantrum and start screaming at them and chasing after them and oftentimes grabbing them by the wrist and trying to pull them back to my my pitch where I was where I was performing. And the scene that I would cause is what would build a crowd for me. So sometimes I would be successful and pull somebody back to uh, where I was performing and they would stand there and they would watch. And then they would be, you know, kind of a feature of, of the show. I would refer to them constantly. Uh, and other times it wouldn't work, but it didn't matter because people would gather, uh, with the people I had already started the show with and, you know, they'd be there wondering what the fuck was going on. And, uh, and I'd eventually return and, and, and just start the show. And so that was, that was successful. And then what made you decide to, to move? Was it like, okay, now how do I take this to the next level? Well, so, you know, the community of, of performers, now largely exists online and 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 then on a message board called the magic cafe and there was a there was a sideshow section there and on that site there was a user that uh that was starting up a museum called the venice beach freak show uh, who you know later on had a reality show and i went uh, as as uh, I, I basically convinced him to move me out to California to help him uh, create his dream museum, and yeah, he so he he brought me to L.A. I lived in his garage on a couch for uh, for about a year, year and a half, and then I moved out of his place into my own place uh, from from the Deep Valley to actually living in Venice, and. Um, we, you know, we started out in this really small storefront and then it eventually expanded and we, you know, built display cases and painted everything and built a stage and, and I was the star of the show and I, I hosted this little show with his daughter as my assistant and she was the electric lady and, um, and the blade box girl. And we would, uh, we would grind it out all day long, every day for hours upon hours upon hours, sometimes doing shows for one person, which is <laughs> unbelievably hard um, and, and, and oftentimes humiliating. <laughs> well, I remember me. That's where I met you um, was at the Venice Beach Freak Show. I was writing an article for Bizarre Magazine. Yes. Yes, I remember this. OK. Yeah. And and so you're featured in that article. You had held claim uh, to a world record for having swallowed 37,500 swords in a year. Yeah. Which averages out to 103 swords a day. Yeah. So first of all, does that record still hold? And then I know you just said you were doing the grind all day, but 103 swords a day. That sounds just that's incredible. Know, 20, 30 shows a day, uh, multiple swords a show. Um, you know, I wasn't... Uh, I wasn't given the liberty to be lax on the show, even if there was uh, one or two people in the audience. I had to do the whole thing. Right. Because he, he certainly wanted that blade box money. Yeah, you know, it was – that is a 
it's a record that was through um, world's world record holders republic or something like that. And uh, I mean, to my knowledge, no one has come close to that. It's a pretty big number. It's a it's a massive number. <laughs> and uh, so you're not looking to break that. <laughs> no, no, God, no. Uh, you know, I think I'm different from a lot of sideshow people because like I really couldn't care less about world records. Um, I think there was a time when when I thought that stuff like that mattered. But, you know, now it's more about like, well, you got to be a good performer. So from from there. OK, so eventually you moved out to Vegas. Yeah. 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 So I, I stayed in L.A. for uh, a little more than a decade um, and was, uh, you know, I was at the freak show uh, for about four years of that. And then um had a had a rough split and then i uh was out on my own finally and 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 finding some success and working at the magic castle a lot uh doing corporate gigs and and tv shows and things of that nature and throughout that process i was uh going back and forth from la to vegas and doing different Vegas shows. The first one that I did was a, a it was a variety act in the show, the Crazy Horse Paris. Um, it was a super high end topless review show that was uh, at the MGM. So I did that for a little bit. I uh, I then was a cast member of a show called Vegas Nocturne, which was the highest budgeted variety show of all time um, that lasted for a grand total of eight months. I was in six of those eight months. What happened next? From there, I became a cast member of the show Absinthe, which is uh, the number one show in Las Vegas. And I was a I was a, a, I was a sub act for Absinthe. So, you know, if an acrobat was out or sick or whatever, I would uh, I would often come in from LA to uh, fill up the roster. And then I was starring in a show called um, Band of Magicians at the Tropicana. It was me and three other magician friends. And, you know, we did a big old fun family magic show. Then that uh, closed. And a couple of years later, I ended up in the show that I'm currently in, which is called Opium. And it is a raunchy space themed comedy show at the cosmopolitan and so where does the sword swallowing come into place with that <laughs> or there are other stunts as well um well so i so in opium i play the villain and uh the character's name is rear admiral todd todd <laughs> uh being a uh you know a little nod to todd robbins and uh the character is a, a very effeminate evil alien that uh, wears high heels and short shorts and uh, tries to to destroy the ship by fucking it with a giant dildo. <laughs> and, so it's a, uh, it's a family show. It's a, it is certainly, <laughs> yeah, it's a family show, absolutely. Bring the kids. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, it's a variety show with a storyline, so sword swallowing is kind of crowbarred in there, but it, it works. So, okay. So you've got all these shows going on in Vegas. Um, so you're, you're keeping busy, which is great. Get lots of different experiences. And then America's got talent, of course, comes along. Right. And I've seen, I've seen social posts from some performers who've been resistant to going on the show. 
Yeah. So for you, I mean, did you have producers who'd been reaching out to you already um, and you finally said, sure, or like what made you decide that you would give this a shot? So I, I had been resistant to America's Got Talent for a decade. I mean, they had been after me for 10 years, hmm. you know, since the fifth year of the show. I had producers uh, asking me to do it, and I would say no every time. And it was always based on, you know, the experiences of others. You know, in the early days of that show, they legitimately used acts, uh, variety acts, as, as cannon fodder. You know, it was it was not a friendly world for uh, a variety act. And uh, after a number of years, they sort of realized, oh, you know what, we we need variety and variety is a viable thing and people really enjoy it. Let's um let's maybe stop making fun of them and uh let's put them forth as as legitimate competitors. So friends like Piff the Magic Dragon, um Tape Face, uh Puddles, Pity Party, you know, these uh these guys are really, really respected acts, respected novelty acts that um, that had their careers changed by AGT. So the uh, the senior casting producer, John Piermarini, he, he had been reaching out to me for about five years in a row. And I finally said, yeah, you know what, I'll, I'll do it. And uh, we decided to move forward. And just so happens that I was lucky enough to choose the year of uh, 2020 to, <laughs> you know, put my name out there and and uh, hopefully, you know, do really well in the show and then launch my own show and tour the world. And, uh, you know, I'm sitting here talking to you on Skype from my apartment. So <laughs> it wasn't that wasn't the grand plan. <laughs> that was not the plan. I, I hate to say it, Mark, but uh, but. Yeah, it you know, it was one of those things where I started the show. I started the process pre-pandemic. I was I was one of the last auditioners to have a live audience and it was early days. Like I remember in the in the casino at, at the Cosmo, you know, they had the hand sanitizer was everywhere. People were kind of freaked out by it, but like eh, this is going to go away. Like this is not this is this is not a problem. Uh, just gonna gotta wash your hands more, and uh, and I leave, I go, I you know, I decided against flying, so I drove out just because you know who knows. Um, I get there, things are going well, and then they uh, they come backstage and they go, hey guys, just a heads up, Heidi Klum um, isn't feeling well, so she's being uh, quarantined in her trailer. So there will be three judges. I was like, oh, okay. And then that sort of was like, oh, this is scary. Things are weird. Yeah. And uh, and I went out there and uh, did my thing. And and Sofia Vergara was uh, was the greatest thing that could have ever happened to my act. Um, <laughs> for those of you listening to this that haven't seen it, uh, you should watch it. But um, everything went wrong, and it couldn't have been better. I have to say, it was a lot of fun to watch. I really enjoyed it. And I was wondering, you know, when you brought her up, I mean, clearly you had planned to bring her up, or at least you had to decide that after Heidi was in quarantine. Mm -hmm. um, but when she, again, for listeners who haven't seen it, Brett called Sophia on stage to pull a sword out of his throat. 
And when he asked her to do that, she was she was freaking out on stage. She's like, I'm, I, you know, she couldn't do it. So I'm wondering, like, what what was that moment like for you? I, I, that wasn't planned at all, right? This was all spontaneous at that point. You're having to react this to her reaction. Completely spontaneous. Nothing about a lot of people ask me, like, oh, that was rehearsed or that was planned. Like how, like how, what's that process like? And it's there is no process, especially with the auditions. You know, you're you're nobody special. Uh, for the auditions, you you're there to to prove yourself. So you have no stage time. You've got there. You just get out there and you do your thing. So you're going into it blind. Uh, the judges know nothing about you. My my whole act is based off of trying to create a train wreck on stage. <laughs> so I'm very very well equipped to handle somebody that is uh, combative, and I and I want that. I want to work off somebody that is freaked out. So when she wouldn't pull the sword out of me, I knew that what was going to happen was going to be great. And I was very excited about it. So, <laughs> you know, I'm yelling at her and, and we're yelling at each other. And it's and it I mean, I was they edited it down to about 12 minutes, but I was out there for probably closer to 20 when in reality, they, you know, beforehand, they're like, so you get four minutes on stage which they were being generous to me because I said that two minutes was impossible uh, to do what they had asked me to do. And I, I, I finally agreed to four minutes knowing that it was pre-taped, thinking like, well, I'm just going to do what I do and then they can edit around me. And, uh, and it worked out in my favor. It was, it was one of the most fun things I've done ever. She couldn't have been more perfect. Yeah, she she was <laughs> her reactions were just amazing. And uh, like I said, your your responses to her and the way you played off her was just was very entertaining. Um, it just yeah. made it a lot of fun to watch. Thanks. And you could see like you could just see the yeah, the, the spons you could feel the spontaneity and, and you were clearly having fun with it. <laughs> I don't know what she was thinking, but um, but like you said, it worked out uh, amazingly in your favor. I mean, I, I think she's a a brilliant, brilliant performer herself. And, you know, I, I, I think, I think she definitely, once she realized what I was doing, how I reacted to her, uh, initial, um, hesitation, I think she was like, okay, we can play. And, and I think we really, really vibed well off of each other during that audition. Um, and then, you know, another after that was done, then I get to continue on with the rest of my act. So I get an I get an audience volunteer for the very first sword that I swallow, and then from that point on, it's it's just kind of me on stage, and I'm doing my thing, and it's you know fun, and the audience is behind me, and the judges are into it, and they're still kind of recovering from how crazy Sophia was, and um, Simon interrupts me uh, right at the end, and he goes can I pull a sword out of you? <laughs> and, uh, and I, the way I reacted, they actually edited out this, uh, this line, but I, I looked at him and I was really confused by it. And I had to make him say it again because I didn't know what he was talking about. He goes, no, no I, I, I'd really like to pull a sword out of you. I've never done that. And I just looked at him and I go, as if I have nothing else to do, let sure. Simon, let's do what you want to do. Fine. So I, I, I bring him on stage and then I realize Heidi Klum is gone. The finale of my act was swallowing three swords anyway. Simon wants to pull out a sword. Why don't I just have all three of them pull the swords out of me? 
So on my feet, not not really just kind of jazzing. I go, okay, yeah, Simon, you can pull a sword out of me, but everybody, all of you are coming up and all of you are pulling swords out of me. So it got to be this this really great, unplanned, unrehearsed, crazy moment where the producers are all like talking in their walkie-talkies going, what, what is going on? How do we how do we deal with this? And they're like, just let it happen. And um, yeah, that was that was it. That's amazing. So so that obviously worked out really well. You got to go back, of course. Um, mm-hmm. After that, so before did you have one more act be- with a live audience or was it straight into pandemic quarantine after that straight first into one? pandemic quarantine so so uh the day after their production shut down completely and oh, everything old wow. so the next round was shot at my house like virtually just me so everybody was in their respective uh, uh homes and the people that had gotten through the audition. So that was the judge cuts round. And I was lucky enough to not have to perform again for that round. They they just pulled me up on the screen and they go, you know what? Your audition was so great. We know we want to see you in person. You know, come back for the live shows. So that was fun. Yeah, that helps. And I, you know, it's funny. I, that was a very, the filming process for that was a very, very long drawn out thing because they had to get through so many people. So the judges were on a set, like a, like a drive-in movie theater set. And then all the talent, they were all over the world really. Um, and they would, uh, do a zoom call. And I was basically in a holding room for an hour and a half, two hours, uh, waiting for it to be my turn. And it was finally my turn. And, and the judges are talking and they're, they're they're reading everything that they've got to get through their their script and stuff, and I'm realizing like I had I had kind of planned uh, bullet like conversational bullet points beforehand. Like these are the things that I want to hit. Like how, you know they kind of prep you to know that these are the types of questions that could be asked of you. You know, make sure you have a good response ready, right? And I had had an overwhelmingly positive response from the audition airing. So, you know, there was this one woman that contacted me and told me about how it was so good to finally be able to laugh again because she had gone through all this crazy stuff and her and her kids decided to sit down and watch TV. And, you know, they really enjoyed my performance. And it was this kind of this heartwarming story that I was ready to tell. And, I'm sitting there and they're just kind of talking and it's one o'clock in the morning, by the way. So they're tired. I'm tired. They've been, you know, filming for hours and I realize, Oh, I'm not going to get to talk at all. So I decide, uh, that, you know, I, obviously I'm waiting on them to tell me if I'm going through or not. Cause at that point I didn't know. So as I'm sitting there, and thinking, okay, well, I've got to do something fun. Like I've got to make this entertaining in in some way. So as I'm sitting there on this Zoom call, I just took off my pants and was sitting there in my underwear so that whenever they announced whether or not I was going to get through, I could then either jump up in excitement and and do the do the trope of of being on a Zoom call without pants on and be super excited and jump around in my underwear or just totally take the piss out of it. If they tell me no, be super outraged 
and start yelling at them and back up from the the camera and reveal that I'm in my underwear. Either way, (laughs) it's going to be really funny and make good TV. So essentially my performance for for the uh, for the judge cuts round was revealing that I I had the audacity to just be on this call in my underwear. And then from there it moved to the actual live rounds which were uh in a studio with no audience, it, just me and the judges on stage. And so how much time was between the first performance and and this next performance on that that stage with no audience it was it was months between the audition and the first live show okay so then like when you go into this whole thing to begin with do you say okay i'm here's what i'm gonna do on my first audition and if i get through i'm gonna do this next act and if that goes through i'm gonna up the ante and do this next act or do you kind of have to figure things out as you're going uh so i had to figure things out as i was going um because i knew based on the audition that the minute I walked off stage, I knew exactly what I wanted to do next, which was I need to do something that is a redemption for Sophia because narratively, Sophia, you know, quote unquote, ruined my act, right? Because she was she was so bad at doing the job, <laughs> which I mean, obviously, right. she made the act amazing, right? But that was the that was the storyline that I was going with was oh, you ruined the act, like, I'm going to give you a second chance. Uh, And the way you're going to do that is by shooting me with a crossbow. You're going to shoot a crossbow at me. So I had to have, I basically invented a crossbow that when you pull the trigger, it explodes and falls into a million, breaks into a million pieces. So it's a practical joke crossbow. And, And it was under the guise of a card trick. So she believed that she was going to find a card that Heidi Klum had signed and I lost it in the deck. Uh, I was going to hold that deck of cards in my teeth and she was going to aim at the deck of cards and pull the trigger and shoot the deck of cards with the arrow. Right. Basically aiming the crossbow at your head. Yes. And of course she was thrilled to be doing this, right? Oh, again, (laughs) absolutely terrified. You know, you're, especially with quarantine, you're not allowed to uh, – nobody had contact with each other, like physical contact at all. So I had to make training videos for her to watch so that she could know how to fire the crossbow so that we would save time on stage and, and all that stuff. So this whole time, I'm making her believe that she is really going to shoot me with a crossbow. So what you saw on television was legitimate fear. She really thought that she was going to shoot me with a crossbow and could potentially kill me. Sophia, raise the crossbow. Any day now. Oh, no. Not there. No? No. Okay. <laughs> a little higher. No, wait, no, it's wrong? No, 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 you're fine. Just... Okay. Just at the oh, deck. my God. But wait... This is what I'm pushing here. Yes, the trigger. Are you sure? But not yet. Here we go. All right. Aim at the deck. I'm not going to look. Do I have to look? Yes, you have to look. You have to look at the red dot. Here we go. No, wait, wait. This is moving. Okay. Oh, my God. I know. I beg you. I beg you. Sophia. He said fire. Oh, my gosh. No. Uh, Fire. Joke! <coughs> <Sorry>. Six feet! 
it was absolute mayhem on stage and uh and it worked out people people really enjoyed it so then i go okay well fuck what do i do next <laughs> like, right. i don't know because uh, I have, I'm a sword swallower. I have one act, you know. I do magic and I consult for magicians and and come up with fun things like that, but always for other people. Right. That's why I was wondering, like, okay, how do you? Yeah. How does a sword swallower keep upping it? I mean, obviously, you can swallow more swords, and you you'd already done three in the first one, so yeah, it's a real challenge. Uh, and that's what every sword swallower that's ever done this show has done is they just swallow swords but luckily i have another skill set which is magic so i wanted to incorporate more magic with uh with what i was doing so that's why i did the card trick sort of premise with that crossbow which there ended up being a trick at the end the the arrow uh the the card got lodged in my throat after she uh, broke the crossbow. So then I had to grab the arrow that she didn't fire and swallow it and jab the card that was stuck in my throat and pull it out. Yeah, it's a great effect. So it, it, was, it was very, very fun. And it was, it was, you know, legitimate signature match and all that stuff. It was super fair. Uh, I was really, really proud of it. Um, so the next thing was like, okay, well, what do I do next? How about I do more of a regurgitation sort of feat, like a like a Stevie Star kind of uh, regurgitator thing? But because I can swallow swords, why don't I actually show the object that I've swallowed in my stomach? Before you describe all that, so regurgitation, that was part of your repertoire already? Or did you say like, oh, let me go figure out how to regurgitate now? Um, no, it was it was part of the repertoire. So like, you know, I worked with um, I worked with David Blaine on his uh, last television special with the where he regurgitated frogs. Yeah. yeah that so, was great. you know, that was a that was a, an act that we basically recreated a hundred year old act from a guy named Mac Norton, a French performer who was uh, known as the human aquarium. And uh I, I enlisted the help of a friend of mine in the UK, uh, this guy Ian Brown, who is a really good water spouter. So we uh, we basically hung out with David Blaine in his bathroom for months, figuring out how to do this act that hadn't been done in many many years, and uh, and we did it. So uh, so regurgitation was something that I had in my back pocket. Uh, it was always you know with live live frogs going in and out of my stomach but uh but i figured what what's super cute and a good juxtaposition between the the disgustingness of inside of my body and i thought why not a rubber duck you know be, before we before we even get into rubber duck because i gotta ask what yeah. is it like to swallow a live frog and bring a live frog back up i mean <laughs> I, I remember i remember watching david blaine do it and it was great and i watched him do it on jimmy fallon and Jimmy Fallon's yeah. reaction was was just awesome. Yeah, it's as it's as uh, it's as lovely and comfortable as you could imagine. Um, <laughs> so you know, we went to Chinatown and bought these frogs that were going to be eaten. So we figured, like, well, you know, if if we end up losing them in our stomachs, they've met the same fate. <laughs> but yeah, learning the process, being able to swallow a frog. First of all, frogs are very very strong way way stronger than you could ever imagine so are they fighting it 
they yeah like they'll 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 try to jump when they're in their mouth in your mouth oh and uh and it's i mean they'll pop out of your mouth they will they will get through your lips um <laughs> so the way you you know you have to load them in your mouth and and kind of have them turn around so they're like facing your your throat and you get a little bit of water in there and then you you have to get them in and it's 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 wild and just to stress the people this is all real like there's no trickery going yeah, on here there's no, there's no magic and here's the other crazy thing it doesn't harm them at all like it they're actually like quite comfortable being in your mouth because it's a it's a it's a warm dark wet place and once you actually get them in your mouth they go yeah okay this is this is cool so you've got to position them and then you swallow them and they it's basically like they go down a water slide and now they're hanging out in your stomach and it's fun you know i've i've left frogs in my stomach for about 20 minutes and uh and then brought them up and they're right as rain they're super happy when they come up so it's you know it's weird one frog you can't really feel but when you get three four five frogs in your stomach you feel them bouncing off of one another I can't even imagine. It's, I mean, literally butterflies in your stomach is kind of uh, the best way to describe it. Have you tried that? Uh, no, I've, <laughs> I've, not. I've not. But I have legitimately had a frog in my throat. Like that's, <laughs> right. you know, I have had a frog. Uh, I, I've tried to bring it up and it's gotten to a certain point where it's just kind of like, I don't know if it's like stretched out and just kind of chilling in my esophagus, but you know, I'm, I'm talking like this because there's actually a frog in my throat and I can't get it up. So I've got to drink water to push it back down and then push it back out. It's it's a whole thing. Like you can't eat for eight hours before you have to um, sort of rinse out your stomach. You, you've got to, uh, you know, put a little baking soda in there to neutralize all the acids. It's really difficult it's really uncomfortable for the person, uh, and uh, and it's worked out really well for David Blade. Yeah. Okay. So I, I I'm sorry I derailed your story a little bit, but that was I think worthwhile <laughs> to hear about yeah, the frogs. Absolutely. So you were regurgitating it. You were excuse me. Now I got a frog in my throat. You were <laughs> swallowing your rubber duck um, yeah. for the act. Okay. So yeah. So go on. So okay. So I figured. All right. I'm going to do another magic trick, and the premise of this magic trick will be. Uh, objects commonly swallowed by young children and, you know, coins, uh, bobby pins, paper clips, toy cars, keychains, like all kinds of stuff. So I had, I had this big stack of medical photos, these, um, these medical Polaroids of objects that were retrieved out of the stomachs of children. One of them happened to be a rubber duck. And I said to Sophia and Heidi, um, I'm going to try to mentally connect with you and you're going to try to do, you're going to try to divine the, uh, the object that I swallowed when I was a kid that sort of brought me to the point in my career that I'm at. Like the, the thing that kind of inspired me, like, oh, if I could swallow something crazy like that, I could swallow swords. You know, this being all part of the, the, the story and the, the trick that is, it's not a legitimate thing that happened. I did this magic trick process where they eliminated different uh, photographs and they eventually landed on the rubber duck. So I go, it's really interesting that you would, you would choose the rubber duck because uh, 
you know, Howie's standing over there next to that box. Howie, will you open that case? He opens the case and, and I say, pull out whatever's inside there. He pulls it out and uh, I go, Howie, do you know what that is? And he goes, no. I said, that's an endoscope. It's a camera for looking inside someone's body. Howie, that is going inside of me and you're the one that's going to put it in. So he's super grossed out. Obviously, he's a, you know, world famous German. And, uh, and I go, yeah, you're going you're gonna to stand right here. We're going to plug this into this big monitor. And, and it's an it's a endoscopy tool. So it's a, it's a big uh, camera on like a flexible gooseneck. And uh, I turn it on and Howie stands above me and he lowers the camera into my mouth, down my throat. It goes into my stomach and on the, on the screen the entire time you can see what's going on. You can see the, the, this footage uh, as the camera's going in uh, and I find the, the duck in my stomach. The audience sees it. We pull out the camera. Ta-da, there it is. I prove to you that there's the duck. And then I go, wait, oh, it's moving, it's coming. And then I regurgitate the duck. I mean, if people had any doubt that what they were seeing was actually your stomach, that sort of sealed the deal when you actually brought it out of your stomach. Yeah, and and it's, I mean, I, you know, I had to find a gastroenterologist uh, and figure out if it was possible um, to do safely. Because the rubber duck, it's a it's a smaller rubber duck, but it's, I mean, in in regards to uh, your esophagus and 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 what that can handle and what your intestines could even handle, uh, quite large. So we, uh, uh, with the help of with uh, with the medical professional, I I figured out how to do it. I actually released um, a video of some some practice footage. It's on my YouTube and on my Instagram. But uh, it's me sort of talking about that act and and conceiving it and uh, going to the gastro and having him shove a camera down my throat and and figure out you know is this a thing that could be duplicated on stage? And, and so, how long was this whole process of figuring this out? Because you know, obviously, there's coming up with the idea and then doing all the things you just talked about. I I had a couple weeks. I had a couple weeks. Okay, so you're moving quick. I, I was moving very quick. And the worst part about it was I had, I had a couple weeks, but I tested positive. I, I, I tested positive for COVID Oh, in the middle of this two weeks. I didn't have COVID. It was a false positive. Um, okay. But the way the CDC uh, operate, like when you get a positive COVID result, you can't test out of a positive legally. So AGT would not allow me uh, on the rehearsal premises or anything like that or on set while I was uh, I, I, under a 10-day quarantine. So you test positive. I then had three uh, negative tests after, but because of the way the virus works, like sometimes you're shedding, sometimes you're not, all this stuff, right? Uh, I learned a lot about COVID during this, uh, during this time. So I was stuck in quarantine for 10 days and had four days to actually figure this out. So it was, uh, it was pretty rough. It was pretty, pretty awful um, to be stuck in a hotel in L.A. Uh, without like maid service or anything like that, getting my meals left outside of my door, not being able to leave. Pretty intense. But, I, you know, I pulled it off and, uh, and I made something that I think was maybe a little bit too gross for America. 
<laughs> so uh, I didn't get through, but uh, but I did go further than uh, any sideshow performers ever gone on that show. Yeah, it was a great run, and it was very entertaining. Congratulations again. It was terrific. Thank you. Yeah, it's good. Like, I mean, listen, you know, we're in such a weird time period right now. Like, I didn't get to really reap any benefits from the show. I mean, I have I have a ton of new I have legitimate fans now, which is very, very cool. And I'm super grateful for that. And a lot of people that message me and say nice things to me about the appearances and, and how much they enjoyed it. Uh, but you know, I'm just kind of in a holding pattern waiting to get on stage again. As are so many, right? Yeah. Yeah. Just, just a crazy time. Assuming that once things get moving again, you'll still have the show in Vegas. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 So I'll continue with the opium. Um, and, uh, and there are, you know, there are things that are in the gestational stages of, of planning, um, so you know, who, who who knows what the future will will hold? Uh, things can things can start moving as soon as uh, shows can like happen in a real way. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm sure there will be more opportunities, like you said, once they can actually happen. But yeah, I'm sure you've opened plenty of doors with your performances. Yeah, I, yeah, I hope so. It's it's. I mean, it's been super fun, and like I said, like the the fact that like I go places and people recognize me. It's very, very cool. Uh, you know, I love it. There's a reason I'm a performer. I love attention. So, <laughs> so you know, being being out and having the pink hair is great because it's a really good identifier. Even in a mask and like sunglasses, people go, "Oh, you, you're the guy. You, you're from AGT," and they want to take a picture and stuff. Um, you know, it's nice. Well, this is great. You know, thanks. Thanks so much for sharing all these stories. And congratulations again on, on all the success you've had. And I hope this pandemic is done soon. It looks like it's on its way out, which is good news. Hopefully it leads things lead to uh, bigger and better for you. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. I'll be honest with you, the yeah. fear was atrocious. Well, you I don't, don't know, know what, what it felt like when you touch it. It feels like it's stuck in there and I was going to hurt him. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you missed Brett's appearances on America's Got Talent, you can look them up on YouTube, and you can find more of Brett on Instagram. His handle is at Loudermilk, spelled just the way it sounds. Weird Historian is brought to you by me, Mark Hartzman. This episode features clips from episodes of America's Got Talent, season 15. The theme song was created by Steffi Copeland. And this episode was edited and mixed by James Archer. For the strange tales, check out my site, weirdhistorian.com, and follow at Weird Historian on Instagram. Until next time, have a weird day.